0: you guys want to open your Bibles to Nehemiah 8, that's where we're going to spend most of our morning. James read for us a, a parable of the sower. I, I sometimes call it the parable of the soils. I think it's more properly known as the parable of the sower. Um, but we're It's a parable we're familiar with, the four different types of soils and the four different hearts and what they represent. um, I want to focus on an example uh, this morning of good soil. Um, And we know the four soils, right? There's the wayside soil, which is just hard, and when the seed hits, it doesn't penetrate it, and the birds come, swoop it away. Well, that's Satan coming and snatching the word away from the heart. The person hears Right? But you could argue it doesn't listen. Right, he hears it, but it doesn't penetrate. doesn't make an impact. And then there was the thorny soil, which, you know, the seed falls in that soil and it grows and it produces a plant. But the plant doesn't produce any fruit because it gets choked out by the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches in the cares of the world, actually. And Jesus mentions there as the thorns. And then there's the rocky soil, which the seed hits, and it finds soil, and it, there's nothing really preventing sunlight from getting to it or rain. It's just not deep. You know, it starts to get a root, and the root hits the rock, and it can't do anything. It can't get nourishment. It can't get firmly planted, and the sun comes out, right, it scorches it. Well, that's, you know, someone who receives the word and says, yeah, I'm on fire. And then persecution comes along, and no, this, I'm not in for this kind of fire. You know, um, I'm done. And then there's the good soil, right, which is where the seed falls and doesn't just produce a plant. It produces a plant that produces fruit 30, 60, or 100 times the seed that was used to produce that plant, to get that plant. Well, here in Nehemiah 8, I think we have an example of some good soil, soil that produced some fruit. And I want to look at the characteristics of these people. I want to look at the characteristics of these hearts, um, and try to convict myself, which I have successfully done in preparing this lesson, and try to convict you in some ways that maybe you're falling short of that good soil, and maybe give you an example that you can look back on in Nehemiah 8 and say, how am I not being like these people? How is my heart not quite this way? I want to mention one more thing about soil. Uh, and it's kind of an obvious thing, that soil gets cultivated. You know, a farmer doesn't just buy land and say, well, it's rocky soil, so what? I guess I won't grow anything here. He goes and removes the rocks. Um, thorns will grow. Weeds will grow more than a desired plant. Anybody who has a yard knows that. Leave it long enough and you're not going to have any grass you're going to have weeds. That's, weeds just grow, right? They're, they're aggressive. Also, well, the farmer's got to get out there and he's got to keep the thorns back. So the, the point I want to make in that is that you're not born with some type of heart that you're just stuck with for the rest of your life. And in fact, I would argue that every single heart that we have needs to be cultivated to be good soil, period. It needs rocks removed Uh, and if it's wayside soil it needs to be broken up right break it up make it so that it's not hard so that when the seed hits it it penetrates get the stones out of there get the thorns out of there um I just wanted to mention that about soil because sometimes we say well that's just the soil that I am and that's how I'm going to live this life well that's that's a lie and I'm not going to mince words um that's something Satan's peddling to you if, you, if, if you're falling into that. Uh, we need to cultivate our hearts just like the farmer cultivates soil. So let's look at Nehemiah 8. It's a short chapter. It's 18 verses, so I'm going to read the whole chapter uh, and get the account. I'll give you some background. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah are back in uh, Judea. It's not called Judea at the time. Judah, I guess they called it at that time, before the Romans. After the captivity, they've returned, um, just as God predicted, 70 years, and Cyrus would release them. Well, there's been some fits and starts about getting the temple rebuilt and getting people in security, getting the wall rebuilt. Uh, Things have been sometimes going smoothly, sometimes not going smoothly, not going well. Um, And what we have here is an account of the people getting back and wanting to restart a relationship with God, really. You know, okay, now we're in this land, but how are we supposed to be different from people? Um, what makes us different from people? We know that something about Jehovah that makes us different, but we need the details, right? And so, here we have Ezra, who is the scribe and the priest, and Nehemiah, the, the, book, the person that the book is named after, is the governor, he, he, he's, and he's not a foreign governor, He's not been appointed as some sort of overlord to go you know keep down these rebels, kind of like Rome did. He wanted to go back right he was he was tearful and torn about the shape that Jerusalem was in and the walls being down. so he was appointed governor to go back and he sought that position okay so let's read uh, Nehemiah eight beginning in verse one and all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maseah on his right hand, and Padaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all, all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, explained the law to the people, while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength." So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then on the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches myrtle branches palm branches and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of the god in the house of god and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, and there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance." Now the reason I I say that here we have an example of good soil is for four reasons. And we'll talk about each one of these very briefly. Um, The first reason is that these people are asking for God's word. They actually gather in the square and ask Ezra to read to them. Secondly, their hearts were teachable. They allowed others to explain to them what the Word of God meant, recognizing that others may have a better understanding than themselves. Third, these hearts could be injured by the Word. They were weeping when they heard what was written in the Word of God. And fourth, these hearts did something with that understanding. They didn't just mourn themselves into some coma. decided to do something with the knowledge they had gained. So I want to talk about each of these aspects or each of these characteristics of these hearts. And don't think about your neighbor as we go through this. Or don't think about your family member that you think, oh this heart I wish they were here to hear this sermon. Um, Use this time to do what these people did and reflect on yourself and your heart. And I will do the same. I'm not here thinking about your heart. I'm thinking about mine. Uh, So let's do that. So let's look right right in verse 1. We get the first indication, right? As I mentioned earlier, these people were asking Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. They want to know what God has to say. If God delivered this to us, that means we value it. And not just we value it and say, yeah, put it in a, a nice shiny box and let's just keep it kind of protected. But I want to feast on this thing. I want to know what it says. He didn't give us an object. He gave us words. If he gave us words, he wants us to understand something. right? If he wanted you to eat, he would have given you food. If he wants you to understand, he's going to give you a message. Right? These people understood that. God has delivered a message so what do you do with the message is you consume that message mentally spiritually they asked for that I need to develop that attitude in my my life more um, we had a lesson year well it's not a lesson it was a kind of a weekend series with Barry Kercheval years ago and he's he really made an impact in in the way he described the Bible as, you know, like, think about when you were dating somebody and you got a love letter from them. You know, now it's, you don't get letters, now it's emails or something, right? But you got a letter in the mail and maybe it had perfume spritzed on it or something, right? How you valued that piece of paper and how how many times did you read that letter, right? How, How careful did you treat that letter? Did you read it for you know any indications or hints? Well, maybe I want to get him or her some gift. Did they give me any hints in this letter to know what they might like or might not like or what should I shy away from? He said, if you read the Bible that way, right, you'll have a better understanding of what God really intended because it's a love letter in the sense that he's showing us his love through, through this message. And I think that idea is something I, I kind of have tried to cultivate it's in those intervening years, and I've done a poor job at it. But at least I have the thought that I can draw back on, right? And I think these people have a similar kind of respect or desire to know what God had said. Um, so here's some questions for you to consider. And again, think about yourself. How often do you ask someone else to give you something from God's Word? As these people did. Ezra, give us something. How often do you go to someone else and ask someone else, give me something from God's Word? Is God's Word for you something that only applies sometimes? guides my sunday morning but not my sunday evening or it guides my whole sunday but it doesn't guide the other 6 days or maybe it even if i'm a really good good christian it guides my wednesday nights and the gospel meeting nights but it doesn't guide the days is god's word something that only applies on days or certain hours or is it something like these people want to tell us how we need to change tell us how we need to be um, do you want to know God's word like you you really have a drive for it because you know you need it or do you have to be force fed God's word Is the only nourishment you get is when somebody's trying to cram it down your throat and it's annoying you, which would annoy me. I don't want you force-feeding me anything. I'm an adult. But if that's the only nourishment I'm getting from God's Word is when someone's force-feeding me, I definitely don't have the attitude or the heart that these people have here in me 8. I 8. So that's the first point and the first questions for you to kind of think about. Second one is these hearts are teachable. Look in verses 7 and 8 and this is what I was referring to. These long list of names in verse 7, right? These, these Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book from the law of God translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. This is a huge obstacle for me. I don't know where it comes from, but somehow in my character, I'm built, or I've fashioned myself such that if sound hits my ears, I assume I've comprehended it completely. I don't take time to dwell on it, to think about it, to consider the implications. I just hear it and I say, yeah, I got it. I understand it. That is not the attitude we can have with the Word of God. And I think these people showed that. They stood in their place while it wasn't just read to them, but these Levites taught them and explained to them, right? Translating so they might get a sense of the word, a sense of the message. Sometimes we need to ask people who have toiled with some of these scriptures longer than we have, or in different situations than we have, they've toiled with these scriptures. To ask them to give us a sense of these things. And certainly what we don't need to do is what I often do is if someone is trying to explain it to me, just t- turn it off in my head. just click it off. I don't need your explanation. I understand it. That's not what these people did. This, this, this is, these are good hearts. This is good soil. So here, here's some questions for me to consider, and hopefully that will help you. Are we willing to remain in our place, as the text says, the people remained in their place? Are we willing? Are you willing to remain in your place and receive instruction, so that you understand the scripture? Are you even willing to admit that that's necessary? <clears throat> I, I am. Brutally honest with you, and I say that is hard for me to say that I need instruction to understand God's word because there's this sense in me that says, No, God knows how to communicate to me. I can I've got it on my own. Well, he didn't design one person churches. There's no one person church that ever existed. So that tells me I don't have it on my own. So you need to ask yourself the same question. Another question Do you solely lean on your own understanding, or do you recognize that you're actually an imperfect creature with your own set of baggage? I mean, I'm using that term loosely, we all have baggage, right? Emotional, spiritual, psychological, every form of baggage. The older you get, the more baggage you have, because there's just more in the past, right? Those things affect how you see communication. Those things affect how you read. Those things affect how you apply, even. Even if you have the correct understanding, they affect how you apply things. Are you willing to admit that, that you have baggage? that affects you? Are you willing to admit and say, well, you know, maybe because of the experiences I've had in my life, when I read this text, I'm going to see it through that lens, and I I need help to see it through another lens from someone else. It doesn't mean that even what you're seeing is wrong. You might help the other person to see it better because of the experiences in your life. But if we're not willing to admit that, then I think we're not going to do what these people did which is say explain this to me so that I have a sense of the message and really listen to receive instruction. Okay, the third point is that these hearts could be injured. And I really didn't know another way to put it except injured because they were weeping. Um, Acts chapter 2 calls it pierced. They were pierced to the heart, sometimes cut to the heart. Look in verses 9 through 12 of Nehemiah 8. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who, were taught, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Verse 10, they encouraged them, Go out and eat some of the fat and some of the sweet, right? Send portions to those who are in need. Don't be grieved. Verse 11, so it says the Levites calmed all the people. In verse 12, the people went away to eat and drink, send portions to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. You know, I I cannot help but think about the contrast between these people and the Israelites who came out of Egypt. How many times did Moses and Aaron have to tell them stop weeping they never even approached that kind of attitude the closest they got was when Moses came down and broke the tablets and made them eat the idol that they had made out of gold or drink it right he put it on the water made them drink it that's the closest they got was when they cast off their earrings and their nose rings and their necklaces to getting to this but it doesn't say they wept these people, all they did was hear the word of God and they, they were weeping. Those are hearts that can be injured. That's soil that the seed has penetrated and now it's starting to sprout some roots and it's really uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good. So, some questions to consider. How often do you read something in God's Word that actually brings you to tears about your condition before God? I, I will tell you, for years and years and years, the Bible for me was a source to give me ammunition for debates. And that was all it was. Sometimes I had preconceived ideas that I wanted to find support for. So I'd open up my manual and I would start looking for verses completely out of context to support my argument. Other times... I would hear an idea that I liked and I said, oh, let me go find support for that in the Bible. Or I would hear an idea that I didn't like and I'd let me go find something that shoots that down. I don't mean just a little while. I mean years and years. That was how I treated the Bible. How I looked at the Bible. How I used the Bible. That is not going to cause anybody any tears. Ever. Never. Never and it's never going to penetrate a heart, and it's never going to produce fruit. Because that's not reading it like it's a love letter. It's reading it like it's a car manual. Let me find the model for this compressor. Now I found it. See, your model's wrong. I got the right model. There should be times... Not every single day, maybe. Well, maybe sometimes every single day for a span. But there should be times where you read something in God's Word that makes you at least tearful. If not just weeping like these people were weeping. If that never happens, I would argue you do not understand your place before God. if you have any inkling of who you are in front of God, the Creator, you will break down more than one time when you read His Word because of what He's done for you. And that doesn't just happen. I mean, it's... We have to cultivate our heart to see something in God's Word that really convicts us of that. This isn't just oh, I'm going to have a good cry and feel better. This isn't, I'm just going to tap into emotions and make God sort of my emotional genie. When I need to feel better, I just read some Bible and cry. This is seeing you for who you are when you open the Word. And that conviction causing tears. Here's the thing I love about Nehemiah 8. This was my favorite thing in the whole chapters, verse 12. When that happens, and I'm not going to say if, I'm going to put it on you to say you need to have that experience with God's word. When that happens, it is a reason to celebrate. Did you see that in verse 12? All the people went away to eat, drink, sin portions, and to celebrate a great festival. Why? Because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites were all saying, hey, we see you got it. Stop mourning that now this is is why we celebrate. You got it. You see yourself for who you are. Celebrate that. I mean, yeah, you're going to cry at first, right? It's going to hurt at first. But then do what these people did and maybe that takes someone besides you to kind of encourage you and say, all right, you know, you see it. If you have this reaction, you see it. You understand it. Now let's, now let's celebrate that fact. Right? Not forget it. Right? Not bury it and leave it away because we're going to get to our last point. But celebrate it. That's a great thing. The Word of God did something to your heart that it was designed to do and your heart was designed to receive. Finally. Celebrate that. The final point is that these hearts did something with that understanding. They didn't just stop. And we won't read all of it, but it's the last of the chapter, verses 13 through 18. They discovered something in the law that said, hey, there's this feast of booths where people live in these booths. Well, that sounds kind of weird. Got a house. Why don't I live in my house? Well, in the seventh month, there was this feast in the Word of God where the people went out to live in booths and the reason was to remind them of the wilderness wandering. So we're going to do that. They sent a proclamation all over the place, all the cities, all through Jerusalem, everywhere the people lived and said, it's in the Word of God, we're going to do this thing. Because we understand what we're reading. We understand that He delivered us. Not just from Egypt now, but he's delivered us from captivity. And we're going to live in these booths. They didn't just mourn and throw their hands up in the air and say, I'm, I'm just bad soil. They changed their lives tangibly. They didn't just say, well... It hasn't been done since the time of Joshua. Did you see that? Did you notice that? There is not... It says that the Feast of Booths had not been celebrated like that since the time of Joshua. That's depressing. What about David? What about Hezekiah? What about Josiah? It took captivity to bring them back for them to even... To have this feast of booze like it had been done when it was first given. Or 40 years after it was first given. Well, that was no excuse not to do it, right? So here are some questions to consider. When was the last time you made a real tangible change in your life? from something that someone else taught you from Scripture. And I put that phrase in there for a reason. I think that requires humility. I'm not asking you to think about the last time you made a change from something you discovered in Scripture on your own. That's great. That needs to happen. That needs to happen more often, probably, than the other. Because you need to be in the Word way more yourself than just what you hear someone else teaching you. So naturally, you're going to learn more things and change more things. What I'm asking is, from the perspective of these people, when was the last time you made a tangible change in your life from something you heard someone else teach you from Scripture? That takes humility. I'm telling you, again, that is one of my biggest problems. Well, Angela told me about it, but I kind of already knew it. Right? Well, yeah, I've, I've been doing that in a way for years, Angela. I don't, I don't need you to tell me about it. That's pride. That is dangerous. Here's another question. How much of your life or how many of your actions and attitudes could be described with the words at the end of this chapter? According to the ordinance. Could a, could a scribe follow you around and say, you know, Robin spoke to his co-worker in this fashion according to the ordinance. Or... You know, James encouraged his neighbor who was sad according to the ordinance. In fact, exchange according to the ordinance now because we have something better than the ordinance, according to the example of Jesus. How often could a scribe follow you around in your day and say, okay, according to the example of Jesus, Angela did this thing? That is very convicting for me to consider that question. I think it would be far too few entries in that logbook. The response these people had to the Word of God doesn't just happen. It's not natural, and I mean that, in the literal sense, it's spiritual. It is not a natural thing for it to happen. But we need to develop that kind of attitude toward the word. And I think for these characteristics that we see in these people, just in this one chapter can help us have that attitude. We need to cultivate in our lives, in our hearts. A desire for God's Word at all times and in all circumstances. If I don't see how God applies to my driving, well, then I need to sit down with God's Word and say, all right, I'm going to get in here and I'm going to find out how I can have a scribe write down Richard drove in Atlanta according to the example of Jesus. I'm going to find something in there or I'm going to ask somebody, right? There's the humility part. I'm going to ask somebody. Where can I use a passage that would help me be a better Christian when I drive? When I shop? When I eat? When I work? And are you a boss, right? When I manage? Do you have a boss, right? When I serve? We need a desire for God's Word to apply at all times. If we don't have that desire, it will never happen we will not apply it in situations that we don't have the desire. We need to cultivate an expectation that we will learn something from God's Word through other people. Not the opposite. I have cultivated in my heart an expectation that I will not learn from other people. That has to be undone, and it's a protective mechanism right Everything comes from within, nothing comes from outside. we've got to we've got to do away with that attitude. We need to cultivate an expectation that we will be injured by some truth in God's word not this protective shell that I'm not going to be injured by whatever I see or whatever I read. I'm going to prepare myself to, be, to defend myself against injury instead. I'm going to make some excuse that says, well, that really doesn't apply to me. We need to do the opposite. We need to cultivate an expectation that God's Word, some truth we read in God's Word is going to injure us. And then we need to cultivate a determination that the final step in this process of discovery will result in a change, a tangible change in our lives. I'm going to be different tomorrow than I am today from something I've gained from God's Word. We have to cultivate that. It's not natural. That is good soil. That is good soil. It produces fruit based on God's Word. And none of that is possible apart from the relationship with God. We can't even have these attitudes. I don't even think it's spiritually possible to have the attitude the correct form of this attitude without first having some relationship with God and submitting to Him and saying, I am a sinner. And the path that I need to walk is not within me. It is from you. That's the foundation of being able to cultivate these things. It's that relationship that provides the foundation for all of these things to take place. That's how it starts. if you need help in either establishing that relationship or repairing that relationship, in order for this to happen, you are surrounded by the people God has designed to help you do that. There is no church of one person. The reason we're here is to exhort and encourage one another to good works. If you need help cultivating that, just talk to anyone here or multiple people here. And we will be glad to help you. I'm going to sing a song now to encourage you to consider that.